You're listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. If you consider your dog a family member, then this podcast is for you. Let's celebrate the love and connection we have with our dogs. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. This is a place for us to connect in the joy of loving our dogs, and also a place where you know you're not alone in the difficult times, or in the sadness of missing a dog that was an important part of your life. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 16 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and I wanted to start today by telling you some exciting podcast news, which is that Amazon is now streaming podcasts through the Echo and the Amazon Music app. So you can now find the Believe in Dog podcast on Amazon Podcasts. So if you are listening through Amazon or otherwise listening to the Believe in Dog podcast for the first time, I wanted to welcome you. Say thank you so much for listening. My name is Erin Scott. I am the mom to two pit bulls, Penny and Nino, in Baltimore, Maryland. And having dogs has completely changed my life. If you go back and listen to episode one, I tell the story of my very first dog, Lucy, who came into my life when I was 25 years old and was pretty much the first dog ever in my life. And it has just so completely changed my life. And I wanted to start a podcast to hear the stories of how dogs are changing other people's lives, whether it's in a small way or in a large way, like our guest today, Shannon Glenn, the executive director of My Pitbull is Family. My Pitbull is Family initially started out in 2011 as a campaign to promote inclusive pet policies by a landlord in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the My Pitbull is Family organization has now become a nationwide leader in the campaign to end housing and insurance discrimination. If you have a dog that could be considered a pit bull, or even any other large breed dog, you may know that it's difficult to find housing, particularly rental properties, that will accept your dog. And if you are a homeowner, you may know that it's difficult to find homeowner's insurance that will cover your dog. And of course, the reason that it's difficult to find the rental properties is because the property owner or management company has to be able to get insurance that will cover the dog on their property. My Pitbull is Family's website has created the largest database of rentals across the country that will accept pitbull dogs. But as Shannon will point out in our interview, just because the property will accept all dogs does not necessarily mean that this is an affordable option for housing. And the lack of affordable pet-friendly housing across the country is also contributing to the homeless pet problem that we have across the country. I'm so thankful to Shannon for bringing her unique combination of expertise and experience to the Believe in Dog podcast. Shannon has an extensive professional background in grassroots campaigns, voter outreach, community outreach, fundraising, homeless advocacy, and policy creation. Shannon holds a master's in advocacy and political leadership, where she centered her degree program around drafting policies to end housing and insurance discrimination for families with large dogs. Shannon is currently the shelter supervisor for the only pet-friendly emergency homeless shelter in the state of Minnesota. 
Today, Shannon and I will talk about her childhood experiences with dogs and how she started volunteering in the animal welfare world. With the My Pit Bullis family organization being based out of Minneapolis, we discuss how the organization has been responsive to the needs of people and the pets in the Minneapolis community during the civil unrest after the murder of George Floyd earlier this year. Shannon and I discuss the changes that are taking place in the animal welfare world and the more programs and policies that are proactively trying to keep families together with their pets. And we also might challenge some of the old school conversations that you might have heard that you shouldn't have a pet if you can't afford it or that I would rather live in my car than give up my pet. Shannon gives us some great insight on how to create inclusive programs to help people and pets without barriers and what that means and what that could look like in this time of COVID. We talk about breed discrimination and restrictions in housing and insurance. And we talk about the fact that all dogs are individuals and how we want to bring back the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover, that we all learned as kids, but that the adult world seems to forget sometimes. So let's get started with talking to Shannon Glenn, the executive director of My Pitbull is Family. Hi, Shannon. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Erin. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited to hear your story. So I'm always interested to know, you know, have you been a dog person your whole life? Did you grow up with dogs or or how did you come to be a dog person? Yeah, so we, I moved around a lot as a kid. From what I can remember, we've always had a dog throughout our moves. I think one of my first dogs was a Shetland sheep dog. Um, So like a Lassie kind of dog. I remember... When I lived in Ohio, we had this little black dog. I think his name was even Blackie. And I remember him getting his head stuck in like a fence or something and the firefighters having to come out and help. Oh my goodness. (laughs) But like there were always dogs of all different sizes. So like from this little dog to this brown mix that we had at one point to a Great Dane. And then it just made sense that I was going to have a dog when I moved out of my parents' house. And was that a pit bull? So I actually didn't adopt a dog right away. So I started, um, it was when I was in student government at a local community college that one of my student senators said, Hey, I have friends that do pit bull rescue. You're moving out on your own. Why don't you go check this out and see what they're about? So I fell in love with this rescue and the dogs. And I started temp fostering and then fostering and ended up foster failing with my dog, Wilbur, who is a pit bull type dog that came from Minneapolis Animal Care and Control back when they weren't allowed to adopt out pit bull type dogs to the public. How did you get started with My Pitbull is Family? I know the organization started in 2011 and you came on board around 2014. Is that right? Yeah, sometime around then. It's all a little bit of a blur. So that rescue that I was involved with um, here in the Twin Cities, I did a couple different leadership roles with them, um, decided to take a break from the rescue community for a little bit and found My Pitbull is Family. And so I joined them as a volunteer to help pass out bumper stickers across the world. And so we were sending out thousands and thousands of stickers because we know that, you know, a couple thousand people see your car every single day. So what better way to share a message than on the back of your car? When I started volunteering with my Pitbull's family, everyone that was a volunteer or that was involved with this bumper sticker campaign decided to leave and pursue other passions. So I was left with 
a couple thousand stickers and some 4XL (laughs) t-shirts and worked with the original founder to turn it into a nonprofit organization. So we received our 501c3 in late 2014. And ever since then, we've just been able to grow and expand our services and really work hard to keep families together. I definitely love that mission. The bumper sticker campaign is so um, personal to to me and to the organization Be More Dog uh, that I volunteer with. Uh, In 2012, we had, um, it was actually the Maryland courts made a court ruling that created a law to allow landlords to discriminate against pit bull dogs. Mm -hmm. And we... uh, Got so much help from Animal Farm Foundation, and and we have tons and tons of My Pitbull is Family stickers that I still see all over Baltimore, still on people's cars. I have one that I have on my notebook that I take to all of my meetings. They're, you know, everywhere. It always makes me smile um, because that was a really long, hard two years of trying to work with our state legislator to get that that law fixed. And, you know, that that makes me smile. It's like a, you know, like a a war wound or, you know, or something like this patch of like, we did this, you know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even locally or when I'm traveling, if I see a bumper sticker, I try to like sneak up on the car and wave. And (laughs) if it's an old dot com sticker, I try and give them a dot org sticker or, you know, just if I see them in a parking lot, sometimes I leave a little care package on their windshield with more stickers and just a little thank you. Oh, that's great. I mean, it's so heartwarming to see something that you've worked so hard for still out in the community and, you know, still being supported by folks that maybe don't have a pit bull type dog, but they understand that discrimination exists against all different types of dogs, especially when it comes to housing and the discrimination that their owners face on many different levels. It's an honor to be able to bring all of that collectively together and move forward to, as our tagline says, lick discrimination. (laughs) Yeah, you know, discrimination is such an interesting topic because I know people who genuinely feel like they didn't experience a lot of discrimination in their own personal life until they adopted a pit bull type dog. And then upon them adopting a pit bull dog, suddenly they're being treated as different. They're being looked at as different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I hope that those experiences of folks that maybe have a higher level of privilege, especially in animal welfare, are realizing that, you know, that discrimination isn't just because of the type of dog that they have or that they may be walking at that time, but it's a long history of discrimination against the people that historically have owned pit bull type dogs. Right. So it all ties back into race and classism as well. So it's, it's more than more about, you know, the people and the dogs rather than just the dogs. So the more awareness we can bring to that, the better. Yes, you actually sort of just quoted one of the lines I have like scribbled in my notes here is I wrote (laughs) classism at best versus racism at worst. And, um, you know, I guess that's kind of what we, what sort of the, you know, the stereotype is, or, you know, that those people are the ones who have pit bulls it's just so interesting to me, you know, when I adopted a dog, it's like, you don't expect to 
you know, I couldn't have plotted out this path that suddenly it has me more attuned to these type of, of issues than I had ever been earlier in, in my life. Yeah. I mean, our a former Minnesota Senator Paul Wellstone says like, we all do better when we all do better. Right. So that's kind of a mantra that I think of while I'm doing this work. And I also have a background in human services. I'm a shelter supervisor for one of the only homeless shelters in the state of Minnesota that allows pets. So I'm able to bring my, you know, my work life into my passion life and combine the two to be able to provide conversation-based care and respect to folks that maybe don't necessarily get that in the animal welfare community. So we work really hard to keep pets with their families if they're low income, if they're in need of resources. And so just being able to really support one another and also bring them into the work that we're doing. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times that we have folks that come to our clinic and then they apply to be a volunteer. Like it's just this revolving door of, you know, getting people in for service and they want to help. And then, you know, then they're talking to the community about the great work that we're doing. And that's really, really important to us. Yeah, that's amazing. That That's the goal, <laughs> you know, is to be inclusive and welcoming, you know, in the community to the point where they're helping you do your own mission. Absolutely. And I mean, in Minneapolis, we have some civil unrest that's happening. And we know that's happening throughout the country as well. And after the murder of George Floyd, we turned our resource center into a community distribution center. So we were doing uh, a pop-up human food shelf, managing all the donations for that, and also providing pet supplies to those that were coming to us. I mean, we serve something like 25,000 people yeah. and about 700 pets in the span of a month. So it was, I mean, it was a lot, a lot of, of work but it was still a lot of hard work and it was nice to be able to shift and mold our services as to what the community needed at that exact moment and support them. And now we're known as a staple in the community for the great work that we we do and have done in the past. I just got chills when you were talking about those kind of numbers. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it was insane. I would not trade... We did um, distribution for 14 days throughout the civil unrest here in Minneapolis. And I was so thankful that my work, you know, gave all of our staff time off to be involved in the community. And without that, I wouldn't have been able to manage the hundreds of volunteers that we had, the thousands to probably like a million dollar of donations that we've received. I mean, it was just an insane month and it really helped us kind of put our stake in the ground here in North Minneapolis. Yeah, that's that's really amazing that you're able to be so, you know, reactive to the needs of the community in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that, you know, every organization needs to be thinking about as they're, you know, working to keep families together or implementing new programs that it really needs to come from the community and what they need rather than assuming what we think they need. Right. So one of the things I had wanted to discuss with you, and we're kind of touching on it a little bit here, is this general kind of like shift that is maybe finally happening in sort of the animal welfare world about like, you know, I've always 
kind of seen that like uh, shelters and rescues, it's all sort of like reactive to the problem of homeless pets. But when you have programs that are actually able to be more proactive in keeping the pets with their families and supporting, you know, the families. I'm seeing so many more of these types of like programs and grants from some of the larger organizations, you know, that are that are starting to pop up. Are you is this something that you're seeing also in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's really great organizations across the country that have been doing this work for a really long time. But there is a general shift that's starting in animal welfare of well, how do we support families keeping their pets at home rather than the traditional shelter model of you can't afford your pet, you can't care for your pet, we're going to take them. And so really being able to provide those services to help that family keep the entire family together, and that includes the family pet, has been something that's been really interesting to watch. I think that in animal welfare, we still have folks that believe that if you can't afford a pet, you shouldn't have one. Or if you're experiencing homelessness, you shouldn't have a pet. I mean, there's a lot of that conversation that is still happening. And um, again, I think it all goes back to the privilege that folks have. So being able to determine who should and shouldn't have a pet when they have a loving home and denying someone of that companionship can be really harmful for people. So I think we just need to be really careful about how we are having those conversations and then trying to get more people on board of providing those services that are a little less reactive and more proactive. You know, when I first started getting involved in the volunteer world, uh, which was around 2008 time, you know, that's absolutely the conversations that were being had is, you know, people can't you know, afford pets, so they shouldn't have them. People, you know, are just dumping their animals off at the shelter. And again, that was not my experience once we started working in the community. And, you know, it's such a a larger problem of people in crisis, you know, people in poverty, people trying to do the right things, you know, people not having access to, to resources. And it's, you know, it's such a, just a larger societal problem. You know, part of the reason why I started the podcast is because I wanted to be able to have these kinds of conversations. And and I can see why when people who volunteer in shelters and people who volunteer in rescue and they're sort of seeing the worst of the worst or they're only seeing like the the bad cases and, and then they start to think that, that that's all that's happening or that's all that's going on. And, and I guess, you know, I just hope that I'm glad to see like this shift sort of happening to come around to say like, no, these aren't all heartless people. These are people in crisis. These are people dealing with the consequences of systemic racism (laughs) that are in poverty, that are trying to keep a roof over their head, that are in survival mode, who think that the shelter is a place to to do the right thing by their pet. I don't know. I I, I guess I'm just so glad to sort of start to see a little bit of like a shift in that sort of nationwide of something I've been seeing over the past 10 or more years. I'm just happy to see that now more policies, more local organizations are starting to have programs to address these and to see like a a shift in in that direction. Absolutely. And I think it's just my two cents, but it's really important for those programs to be really inclusive and low barrier. I know that there are folks 
across the country that are still doing outreach and, you know, maybe there's an income requirement or a fee that's charged. So just really, really being mindful of the people that you serve and making sure that everything works for them. Because at the end of the day, your program is there to benefit the families that you serve and their pets. Um, so making sure that the barriers or no barriers, you know, really make sense for them. Right. Like you said, like not having to show like income documentation. Right. And especially during these crazy times of dealing with a pandemic, right? Like folks might be on unemployment and are unable to afford whatever it may be for their pets, but that doesn't mean that they're going to have documentation of food stamps or receiving county funding or anything like that. It just means that they're literally in between a rock and a hard place and trying to navigate this new world for them, but it's a temporary world. So making sure that programs are able to provide that temporary assistance for folks that are experiencing hardship because of COVID. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Yes. So one of the things I was also curious to see if you had any any additional insight than I than I've ever been able to find is when we talk about like insurance companies and housing and apartment rentals and how I think uh, there's up to 25 different dog breeds that are listed on these discrimination policies that aren't allowed in a lot of the rental properties. I'm always curious of kind of like, like, where did these come from? And I'm assuming, you know, and like when and like when in time, you know, because it's like for as long as I've been paying attention to these things, this has been, you know, this issue has been going on. It seems like somebody made a decision back in like 1982 or something based on, you know, some kind of numbers. And now we've all been stuck with it. And, you know, nobody knows how to change anything. Everybody's just enforcing their policy. They're just doing their job. Like, where did this come from? And how do we change the system? Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. So there, there was a list that was created in the 80s of dog breeds that were liabilities for insurance purposes due to dog bites and damages. And so, as we all know, that science has evolved since the 80s. And the way that we track data is much different, thankfully. So we know that the CDC tracks dog bites and dog bite statistics aren't always the most factual. Notoriously unreliable. (laughs) Right. I mean, where I think one of the last statistics that I saw is that visual breed identification is correct less than 20% of the time. Mm-hmm. So that includes like all of the media reports of dog bites and, and also talking about what's reported for dog bites. So of course, larger dogs are going to have a higher number of bites recorded. But also, I think it's important that like any dog can bite if they have teeth. So um, it's not necessarily a breed trait or a statistic that I, you know, really try to fixate on or anything like that. But when I am talking to insurance companies and talking to landlords, I always try to present it from a business standpoint that it is good business to accept all types of dogs on your policy, regardless of breed or type and focusing more on the responsible pet ownership piece of it. So making sure that policies that are implemented have a pet policy that requires people to pick up their dog's poop outside or that, you know, if they have a cat, making sure that the litter box is clean 
And what we have found is that landlords and insurance companies, they really just want to have partners in their community that they serve so that if there's ever an issue, they have someone on speed dial that they can talk to and be like, hey, my tenant is having issues with their dog jumping and barking and lunging at people in the hallways. What resources can we help provide them with before something happens? So again, it goes back to being more proactive rather than reactive. And I really feel like that's kind of the way that things are moving along when we're talking about, you know, providing services to the community, but also how we partner with landlords to decrease the number of rentals that have barriers to the types of dogs that they accept. Because that's like something in any kind of, you know, shelter world when if somebody's relinquishing a dog, I mean, that's one of the most common things is, you know, we have to move. We found a place to live. We can't have the dog. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's one of the top two reasons. It was battling that number one spot for a while. And I think because this does happen so frequently, it's really important for folks in animal welfare to understand that there are times where people are going to move and they really cannot take their pets with them. Deciding to keep your family pet or face a, a possible eviction down the road for not following the requirements of the pet policy, those are both two very serious things and that can change the course of someone's life. And so I would just really encourage folks that are in this field to, you know, recognize that there are situations that dogs are going to get relinquished and they're for really good reasons. And that doesn't mean that it's any easier on the family to have to make that decision. So when we see people making those comments of, I would rather live in my car than give up my dog, or I would be homeless instead of having my dog taken away or put in shelter, like those are not helpful statements to be made, especially as someone who works with people that are experiencing homelessness. It is an extremely tough and traumatic experience in someone's life. And of course, like no one should have to make that choice, but there are times where they're going to have to. Right. Absolutely. That's a, that's something else I had written in my note too, is that statement about I'd rather live in my car. Yeah. Every time I see it, I just cringe and want to be like, oh, tell me how it would be living in your car. Because let me tell you my experience of working with people that live in their cars or camp outside or are staying in homeless shelters. It is not an easy experience. And the folks that I work with in that world have my utmost respect. And I mean, they're encountering things that I may never encounter in my entire life. And they are some of the most resilient people that I've ever met. And, you know, I was just thinking of how many people that we serve in our clinics here in Baltimore that don't actually have a car. Cars are a privilege. That's one of the things, you know, that with the clinics that we do here in Baltimore, we go to the neighborhoods because that's, you know, one of the number one barriers to people not going to a vet is they don't have the transportation. You can't bring, you know, a pit bull or a Rottweiler on a city bus. And, you know, Baltimore is a large spread out city and there aren't veterinarian clinics, you know, in every neighborhood. So we bring the veterinarian to them. Yeah, absolutely. We, even for our wellness clinics, we've been, I do add an option of like, are you walking? Contact me if you need assistance with getting to the appointment. Like 
all of these things that aren't the most ideal during a time of COVID, but are services that we would easily provide having a volunteer going to help transport an animal or in the special case, we could even bring the veterinarian or volunteer vet to their house to do these things. It's all about just meeting people where they're at and making sure that you can support them the best way that you can. Yes, it just makes me so happy to see, you know, more more programs like this around around the country and to see, you know, somebody with this high profile of an organization as you guys, you know, to be promoting this and sharing this model, you know, with the animal welfare world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we can do it, anyone can do it. And we're always, I'm always available to, you know, share what we're doing. If there's a form or a policy that we have, people want it, can use it. Like we have a Google form for all of our appointment requests for the wellness clinic that we do, all of our food distribution forms. I mean, all of that is free game for anyone who's interested or wants to start a program like this. We started really just from nothing and we have a space and it's almost remodeled and now it's time to decorate and start setting stuff up so we can really serve the community and bring people in and and practice this wonderful case management model of providing animal services to families most in need in our community. I'm sure when you adopted a dog and I knew for sure when I adopted a dog that I didn't think that you know I'd eventually be sitting here thinking of how to like integrate social work, you know, into to helping other dog owners. But that really seems to kind of be the future of where, you know, animal welfare is going to be going and, and, and is needed. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, animal welfare, just like everything else is always changing and evolving. And that's really important to the work. So making sure that we have folks that are working in programs and shelters and running organizations that are willing to kind of move with the ebb and flow of of the needs of the community that they serve rather than staying set in their ways is, is going to be really important, you know, for this year and the years to come. And so my Pitbull's family also has the largest database of uh, housing and apartment rentals that are breed neutral. And so how did that come about? Yeah. So it was actually started around the same time as the bumper sticker campaign we had a very, very simple website where I would say maybe 50 to 100 listings were there around the country. And now we have over, I know it's over 500 the last time we updated it, but we have quite a few more that needs to get added. So folks are able to just go to our website, type in their zip code and see apartments that are available in their areas. However, we know that affordable pet-friendly housing is an issue across the country. And so I feel like there needs to be a disclaimer that not all of the rentals in our database are affordable. And we recognize that. So when we have families contacting us saying that they can't find an affordable pet-friendly rental, we try to provide them some other tips and tricks of working with private landlords or you know, trying to find other housing options for them in their area that would work for them. But in order for us to collect all of this data, we have an amazing volunteer team and their volunteers are located all over the country. They complete rental research studies for us every single month. So every month we're calling um, somewhere between three and 700 apartments that are pet friendly across the country. And then we track their pet policies. And if they meet our database criteria, they get added. And if they don't, we have a new 
housing data specialist that just joined our team. And she'll be doing some really amazing work with mapping and storytelling to be able to really share the work that we're doing on a completely different level that we've never had before. So we're really excited to be able to share this with the animal welfare community and policymakers and lawmakers um, to really be creating some really amazing change in communities when it comes to people and their pets and finding housing. That sounds really exciting. It's so exciting. I had a call with our housing specialist this morning, so it's it's in the works. I'm excited. She's excited. And I guarantee everyone else will be excited about it, too. <laughs> I saw on your website, and I actually think the organization Be More Dog, we have a link to your website from our website about how to work with landlords, like doing like the pet resume or the, you know, canine good citizen and how to, you know, be proactive. And, you know, that's some of that's some great advice. But <laughs> but I know it's not always possible for everyone to be proactive, you know, when they're dealing with the housing situation. Absolutely. And I mean, it's tough. On our website, we recommend that people start their housing search six months in advance. You know, there's so much that can tie into the privilege of someone and being able to start a housing search six months before you know that you need to move is definitely a privilege. Things happen. People have to move very quickly. Job changes, housing loss, your property gets bought out by someone else. I mean, there's so much that can happen. and we want to be able to provide resources to folks that are encountering whatever experience that they may be going through. So the more that we can provide on our website and in person to people, um, at least here in Minneapolis or when we're out traveling across the country at conferences, we will continue to do that until housing discrimination ends or until our mission changes to whatever the biggest need is affordable housing and these insurance policies that, you know, haven't changed since before the internet happened are, are such huge, such huge barriers. And, you know, it, it's so great to have such a great organization, you know, focusing on, on these things. And, and, you know, it's like everybody kind of has like their, their niche to kind of tackle, you know, the, the problem and, and you guys are doing such important work. Yeah, thank you. I mean, we we've kind of always been the leaders in talking about housing and insurance discrimination. I mean, I remember going to large national conferences and they were talking about, you know, pit bulls before we started calling them pit bull type dogs, so pit bulls being surrendered to shelters and, you know, not really talking about housing and how that impacted them. And I remember standing up at a conference and being like, "Well, um, in the area that we're talking about, housing is one of the top reasons, you know, why people contact us for having to surrender their pets. And like, here's the data of rentals that don't accept all of these dogs. So it's really, really difficult for people to find a place. And I remember the speaker looking at me and saying, housing is not an issue. <laughs> um, and so fast forward, gosh, five years, six years, whatever it may be now, housing is a hot topic. So there's a time for everything. And now I feel like it's kind of our time to shine and really ramp up what we're doing with our data, which is why we brought Tiffany on to our team as our housing data specialist. So it's, you know, it's, there's some really great work that's going to happen here in the next couple months. And we really cannot wait to share it with everyone. 
And the more that we can continue working with our partner organizations across the country and building more relationships with amazing organizations doing really great work, we'll be able to collect more data and share more data and just kind of, you know, be super transparent with the work that we're doing and how we can support other communities, even though we might not physically be in those communities. That's wonderful. You brought up the idea of pit bull dogs and the shift in the pit bull advocacy world of how you talk about your dogs and how we describe dogs as being an individual and and, and things like that. Does your organization have like a stand on, on how you like to describe that or talk about the dogs? Yeah, absolutely. We are also on board with all dogs are individuals. So kind of taking the language from Animal Farm Foundation in terms of that, we understand and we always do our best to educate folks that Pitbull isn't a breed, but it's an umbrella term that encompasses a bunch of different breeds of dogs and mixes and types. And that frequently it's based on a physical characteristic list of these dogs that oftentimes is used in breed-specific legislation and discriminatory practices. So we just really try to practice that they're individuals, they're a dog, you know, trying to not make them seem extra special. Uh, but of course, my dog is much more special than anybody else. <laughs> of course. Wilbur and Charlotte are both of my dogs and they're amazing. But also like, you know, trying to normalize a blocky headed, wide bodied dog with a tail that may or may not have cropped ears and may or may not be wearing a spike collar. Like they are dogs. They are part of our communities. They are individuals. They are owned by individuals. And it's just really important that we're treating them as such. Yes. I, I always say that, you know, about our dogs, like we have two blocky headed, broad chested dogs. (laughs) One of them is 55 pounds and has short little legs. And one of them is 80 pounds with a giant head and a curly tail. And, you know, and yet both of them are sort of under the cap of, you know, what people would call a pit bull dog, even though they kind of almost look nothing alike. Right. Absolutely. There's such a huge difference in the dogs that are all sort of included in this pit bull lump. So I don't know what the right term is, you know, and I and I use the pit bull type dogs uh, word also, but we can't assume that all these dogs are, you know, all behaving the same way. Yes. You just need to get rid of stereotypes as a whole, as a movement, as a country, as a human race, all of those things, right? Like stereotypes can often hinder outcomes for the dogs and cats and animals that we love. So we just need to treat every pet, every animal, every human, all as individuals. You know, when you're in school or when you're a little kid, one of the things that, you know, I always remember learning, right, is like, don't judge a book by its cover. And yet we do that so much in society. (laughs) Absolutely. There's even insurance policies, you know, based on judging books by their cover, essentially. I feel like there just needs to be an an adult version of those posters or like, or we just need to normalize that statement again, right? And like, just keep saying it and (laughs) make sure that everybody gets it. Absolutely. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for your time today. I'm really excited to be seeing the research that'll be coming out. Your new uh, team member, I'll be sure to be sharing that on our pages also. 
Thank you for doing the work that you're doing. It's so important to so many people. You have a huge, your organization has such a huge fan base here in Baltimore. You know, we see your stickers literally every day. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your support and for having me on the podcast. And I cannot wait to hear it. I'm so thankful to Shannon for sharing her time with us, as well as sharing with us the empathy and compassion that she brings to her work. I hope it comes through for you how passionate I am about these topics and about where I think the future of animal welfare is going and is needed. I knew that I got started volunteering in the animal welfare world because I love dogs and I had so much empathy for the dogs. But what I might have lacked in the beginning was empathy for people. But I'm so grateful for my journey of volunteering in the community and getting to know members of our community and for that allowing my heart to grow, my compassion to grow, my empathy to grow. It's difficult sometimes to have empathy for people who are making decisions about their pets that we feel like we would never do. And I'm thankful to Shannon for having the conversation and challenging the belief about not being able to afford a pet. I've seen many times in the animal welfare and animal rescue community, if there's someone who is a volunteer or who adopted their dog, and now they find out that their dog needs an expensive surgery that they can't afford. And all of the other members of the animal welfare community will come together and donate money so that this person can get their dog their surgery. And I've donated to these campaigns and I have no problem with this, but I guess I always want to keep in mind that not everybody has access to GoFundMe. Not everybody has access to the internet or knows that this is even a resource out there. Or maybe they just don't have anyone in their network who even has any money that they would donate to them. So when we talk about what it means to be able to afford a pet, I think this is one of the things that we should keep in mind. And now I want to recommend to you one movie, one podcast, and one book. I was talking to my husband, Tim, about the idea of access to resources and barriers to resources and that Shannon and I touched on today. And this could mean things like requiring people to show pay stubs or tax returns to prove their income level before they're able to receive services. And anytime you add any extra requirements on somebody, this is going to create a barrier, which is a stress, which is an obstacle. And so people want to do the right thing, but the more barriers or obstacles that there are to doing the right thing or to accessing the right thing, it means they're more likely to do what we might consider the wrong thing. And so my husband, Tim, was reminding me of the movie Gridlocked. It's from the 1990s and it has Tupac in it, Tupac and Tim Roth. And if you've never seen this movie, I highly recommend that you see it. I don't know if it's available to stream anywhere. We actually have the DVD of it because we're so old, we still have like CDs and DVD collections. But you really need to see this movie Gridlocked. It's about two musicians, Tupac and Tim Roth, who are also drug addicts living in Detroit. And they have a friend who overdoses, and it really inspires them that they need to get clean and that they need to stop using drugs. But there's so much bureaucracy and red tape and hoops for them to jump through in order for them to get into a detox program that it then creates all of these side missions where there's a lot of drama and comedy. And it's really just such a perfect example of barriers to accessing programs and how that can prevent people from getting what they need and could lead them to maybe doing the wrong thing instead of doing the right thing. 
And in case you're thinking, oh, this is movie, this is Hollywood, this isn't real, the writer of the movie, who is also an actor, Vandy Curtis Hall, he actually had given extensive interviews when the movie came out about how this is semi-autobiographical of his experiences growing up in Detroit and having a drug habit and what he went through trying to kick his drug habit. So there is definitely some truth in this Hollywood movie also. Um, I do want to mention this movie does have some language in it that's very adult language, and it also has some graphic depictions of drug use, so, you know, you might want want to watch that with, like, your five-year-old around, but it's a really amazing movie. I love anything with Tupac in it. You can watch any movie that had Tupac in it from the 90s, and it's going to be an intense, amazing, emotional movie that is really going to kick you in the teeth, because that's just kind of the guy that he was, and I love that about him in his music and his movies. If you've ever seen those memes that say, I'm the girl who's bumping gangsta rap on her way to the farmer's market, like, that's totally me, hand in the air right now, 100%. So that's it for the movie I wanted to recommend, Gridlocked. Um, The podcast that I wanted to recommend is actually episode 31 of the Best Friends Animal Society podcast. Best Friends is, of course, the one of the largest national animal welfare organizations, and they started their podcast earlier this year. So I'll include a link in the show notes to where you can find this episode that I'm talking about, which is called Moving Beyond Bias with CARE. CARE is an organization which stands for Companions and Animals for Reform and Equity, and CARE's director is James Evans, who is becoming a leader in talking about diversity and inclusion in the animal welfare movement. Now, I will say a lot of this podcast is directed to organizations more than people individually, but one of the awesome points that I thought they made right in the first couple moments is about how animal shelters and rescue organizations, and there's all these nonprofits out there who are raising money to take care of animals. And this money is, of course, donated and, you know, raised through fundraising, and that we should be, you know, expanding this to include helping pet owners in need to pay for their care, for vet care, for food, to prevent the pet from entering the shelter system or needing the rescue in the first place. And so I thought that this was a really good companion topic to some of what Shannon and I discussed today. And then the book I wanted to recommend, I think I may have actually recommended this previously if you listened to episode six with Annie of Charm City Companions, which would actually be another good sort of companion episode to Shannon and I's discussion today. But there is an amazing book called Scarcity, Why Having Too Little Means So Much. And this is a Harvard economist and a Princeton psychologist who team up to give us a new way to look at everyday life. And I found it so incredibly interesting and helpful in looking at people in poverty and how we can even draw correlations to that in how we maybe manage our time poorly or how if we're on a diet we manage our temptations poorly and I just thought that this was you know so fascinating and such a great insight into doing this kind of animal welfare work too so I'll include a link to that in the show notes if that's something you're interested in as well So this will conclude today's episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. Thank you again for listening. You can always find me on Facebook at Believe in Dog podcast and on Instagram at Believe in Dog podcast with underscores. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I appreciate you sharing it with a friend. You can also leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Any of the ratings and reviews really help more people find the podcast. And I know how many dog lovers are out there. I'm actually going to be working on a giveaway if you leave any ratings or reviews. So if you want to get a head start on the giveaway, you can leave it now. But I will have more details about that coming soon. So until next time, this is Aaron Scott sending hugs and belly rubs. Mm-hmm.